we lay it all down because we're invited to gain so much more. Sometimes we lose sight of that, and that's the point of our sermon today is what satisfies us? Mick Jagger is famous for stating, I can't get no satisfaction. Uh, The Rolling Stones, that was before my time, but I've heard the song over and over. The world around us says that if we get this amount or this physical concept or this thing or this relationship or this position, then we will be satisfied and everything will be all right. Yet I watch the world around me and I see a whole lot of kids Christmas afternoon. What do I mean by that? Well, if you come from a situation where kids love Christmas morning because of all they're going to get, have you ever seen the wall they hit right after lunch because they still want more? Because they're disappointed that even though they got everything they'd asked for and mom and dad searched every shop near and far to give them everything, it wasn't enough. Maybe you'd prefer a more philosophical approach to that concept of which Blaise Pascal, Pascal would say we're, we're all created with this God-shaped hole in our hearts. There's just one problem. We keep filling that hole with everything but the Lord. And today as we continue our series on bringing order into the chaos of life, we're going to look at the idea of worship, but I want to review and let you see where we've come, why we're here, and then next week we'll continue on with the idea of celebration and what God is doing as we gather together. But the first week we talked about the idea that we observe the Sabbath to bring our lives into rhythm with God. And I'm not going to go through that sermon again, but that idea we are in step with the Master. We're in step with this beautiful waltz of life that He's created us and called us to. And we're invited into that dance. Then we, we study and we meditate on His Word to bathe ourselves in Him, knowing that every ounce of this Word is useful. That when we seek this world for answers, they are found here. And that as we depend on him more, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to passages we'd never noticed before. And he continues to teach us. And we talked about bathing ourselves in the word. Soaps, study the scriptures, observe what it has to say, apply it to our lives and pray it daily. And you can go back and listen to that. Then we, we get the idea of retreat. And I know this one feels counterintuitive to the me focus that the world tells us about, but we practice silence and solitude to retreat from selfish ambition and say, here, Lord, I'm yours. You can handle all of me. I'm going to get away from the cares and objectives of this world, and I'm going to give myself to you. And why, where do we learn that? Well, Jesus did it constantly. When things went really well, he withdrew. When his fame grew, he got away in silence. When he mourned the death of a loved one, his cousin, he withdrew. All of these times, all of these scenarios, Jesus knew how to be quiet. Do we? We fast to remember who sustains us. 
to remember no matter how many push-ups you do, no matter how many ab crunches you do, no matter how far you run on the treadmill or out on the roads, that's not enough to carry you through day by day. And as the aging process takes over our lives, we feel more of our body failing, and we wonder, where am I going to get my strength? Well, my strength comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. And by the way, side note, do exercise, do take care of yourself, do eat right. Those are all very good things to be doing. But to walk through life and to live the life that we've been created to, we have to trust and remember that it is him who sustains us. And so we fast, we abstain from something to remember he sustains. This week, we're going to turn our attention to exactly what we've been singing about this morning. We worship to honor him. The very message of the Bible is a hedonistic one. It's all about bringing pleasure and glory to someone. The shift is where the world says we should live as a hedonistic lifestyle of bringing glory and pleasure to ourselves. Listen to what God says in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Listen to what I've already done for you. Out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Just think about that for a second. Right off the bat, Why do we fast? Why do we meditate on the word? To remember what God has already done. As we remember, then we look at the commands he gave in the very beginning. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Before me isn't a word we use a lot anymore. So today, you shall put no other gods in front of me. But he doesn't stop. And he says, and you guys grew up, if you grew up in any sort of church setting, this is the commandments, this is one and two, here's the big guns right away. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. He goes on to say, you shall have, or he's already said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not form an idol Paraphrasing, to replace me. But the thing is, that capacity our hearts have to worship and to adore is filled with many other things. So this morning, what I want us to do in just a few moments, because yeah, we're excited to gather together. The very heart of our mission of a church is to gather together and enjoy the fellowship that God has granted us as a body. And we're going to do that out at Mon Shan Chun. You're welcome to join us. I hope all of you can come, and I hope some of you will show up there that we didn't even know were coming. But we're going to look at what exactly worship is. What's this that, Jesus, that God is talking about here when he says, you shall have no other gods before me? Well, God, I believe you're the only one God. I get that. What does it mean in depth? And we'll look at that. So I thought we should start with some definitions because at the very heart of Alliance International Church, you know we exist to glorify God. The very basic point of why this church is here and why our mission is as it is, is that we exist to glorify God by loving Christ, 
loving one another and reaching the world. That doesn't change. It's biblical. But that first part of it is we exist to bring glory to God, to worship him. How do others define it? A guy that just recently passed away, Howard Marshall, defined it like this. Worship, the old English, that, I can't pronounce that, uh, meant worth-ship. Think about that for a second. Worth-ship. Isn't that cool? Originally referred to the action of human beings in expressing homage to God because he is worthy of it. I can stop right there, look at that verse, and say, do our lives live that? Do our lives live to tell the story that God is worthy of all of our praise and adoration? And that's what worship means at its very heart. It covers activities such as adoration, thanksgiving, Why did Paul say that thanksgiving, that we should give thanks in all things? Because it shows that our hearts' affections are toward one greater than ourselves. It shows that we understand that he's bigger than circumstances and that in all things we can trust him and we can honor him. It includes prayers of all kinds. We've talked about that. The offering of sacrifice. What does that look like for us today? Because we don't have to make sacrifices. We give sacrificially. I hope that we're a church that wants to give our money away in leaps and bounds so that we can give more to those in the front lines. Our community group was talking about this last night. Like, what do we do? You know, we live in one of the more affluent parts of Hong Kong and you don't see great needs that we can connect to in Sai Kung. And so we started thinking, well, what could we do? And we got to thinking about what the kids had just done with New Sight and we wondered, in a year, how many surgeries could we buy for the kids in Congo and in those parts of Africa? So I'll keep you updated as that goes on. Not to say our group is awesome, but to say we get this privilege of sharing together and equipping financially and through stewardship and through prayer what God is doing and how he uses his saints globally. That is part of what worship is. God is glorified in us when we submit ourselves and say, use me, Lord. Use my money, use my time, use my gifts, and use my abilities. A guy named Esau, unfortunate name for him. Worship is the reverential response. Revere. Do you know what it means to revere something? You hold it in this state of awe. I've heard that when people go see the Mona Lisa at the Louvre in Paris, that I don't get it. She's, to me, she's kind of a frumpy looking woman. But this is the great work of art that it is, and when people see the most valuable painting in all the world, it's this, wow. Now show me a Rembrandt and we'll talk, because I like the Impressionists, but I've digressed. Worship is revering. It's a reverential response of creation, us. We'll get to that, I promise. To the all-encompassing magnificence of God. (laughs) How cool is that? God, you are magnificent. God, your beauty is ravishing. Do you realize where you live if you call Hong Kong home? 
you live in, per square mile, I think just about the most beautiful place you can find in all the world. Maybe there's a place in the Philippines that could come close. But no matter what your personality is like, this city's got it, with the exception of skiing and snow. Sorry, you're out. But everybody else, look, you can find beaches in less than a half an hour that are beautiful white sand that are just gorgeous. You can find mountains that by the time you get to the top, you think you've climbed Mount Everest. You can find shopping that makes you wonder, who needs this? You can find people from anywhere in the world. You can find a civil engineering that makes this city work on less than 25% of its usable land and says we're going to cram almost 8 million people into it. It is magnificent to live here. It figures out how to speak a myriad of languages and still get us around to where we need to be. It's got a public transport that I believe is the most efficient in the world. And yet, what do we do? We get very complacent and we complain about all these things. Easily, so do I. I was sitting in traffic the other day complaining, oh, I hate the traffic here. You know, we get that way. It's magnificent. But what makes it most magnificent is the one that put the pieces in place to let us call this city home, our creator. Do we take time to dwell in the magnificent glory of God, our Father and King? When you talk about worship, it's hard not to let John Piper weigh in. John Piper is now a retired pastor that pastored Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota for, oh, gee, as, as long as I can remember. And he's famous for this idea of what's called Christian hedonism. He wrote a book in the 80s called Desiring God. And it, its, its core premise is very simple. And I, you've heard me say it before. I'm going to say it now. And then I invite you to write it down and to live by it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I'll say it again because I forgot to put it on the slide. God is most glorified in us. So God is honored and revered in us when we are the most satisfied in him. The heart of worship starts with understanding God has already served us in this miraculous way. So the obvious result of that is to seek everything in life to bring glory to him. This is how Piper writes, how he unpacks that. We worship first and foremost by thirsting and hungering after God above all things. What do we want most in life? The worshipful heart and mind and body says we want God nothing more, through Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That means we worship first and foremost by being served by God. We don't like to think about that. That's what was so hard for the people of Israel. We're going to talk in a moment about the book of Romans and what they were wrestling with as they understood how to be a Christian. It was a very new thing. Less than 50 years, that concept had been in place. How did they do it? when they had to understand that their Messiah and their King came to seek and serve and save those who are lost. We want our kings being royal. One of the most successful periods of a kingship just ended last Thursday. And if any of you know 
the story of, of what the king of Thailand did for the people of Thailand over his span of nearly seven decades as ruler and king. In Thailand, the kings don't control policy and law. That wasn't their role. It had become more of a figurehead role. But he had garnered so much respect and so much trust among the people that every so often when these uh, coups would come, when the governments would fight against the military for control of the people of Thailand, what nobody read was the meetings that went, behind, went on behind closed doors. The king would call the, the arguing factions into his palace and they would sort it out. And he had such an authority and such a power and such an influence that these warring parties would listen and Thailand would continue on. He never spoke about that. He didn't go out and say, look at how great and successful I was at bringing us back to a peaceful coexistence one with another. So now, as he has passed, people begin to worry, will the two sides or the different sides begin to destroy itself? Well, my prayer is that, no, they will seek the ultimate king that is eternal and that showed us a life of service and that he is to be exalted. He gave himself for us by going to the cross, but it didn't stop there. He rose again victoriously so that we might be set free, just like we just sang about. And as Piper said, we so desperately need himself. We need to realize that there's no part of life where God shouldn't be. If we're living in step with him, there's no part of life that he's not invited into. At work, he's there. I was uh, talking with a potential speaker for next year's retreat uh, that we'll have. I try to work ahead. And we were talking about the idea that my desire is for us to consider what does it mean to be vocationally holy, that our work brings worship to God. And so we were dreaming of what that looks like. And this is a man that's been an entrepreneur. He went over as a missionary and God sent him in a completely different direction than what he'd imagined. What does it mean that every ounce of our life is of worship to God? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's go to Romans chapter 12 you got to start there. You start with the command of, we shall have no other gods before him. And then Paul, at a critical time in the life of the Christian church, writing to the Jews and the Gentiles that find themselves in Rome, because Jews, the people of Israel, had begun to spread out. It was, begetting, it was getting more and more dangerous for them, because a Christian would say they have one Lord and one King, and that is Jesus Christ which is not the same name as Caesar. And in that day and time, if you didn't profess that Caesar was your God and your king, you were subject to persecution, to imprisonment, and possibly even death. And the persecution was growing as different Caesars exerted more control and more abhorrence for the things of Jesus Christ. And so Paul doesn't write this in a vacuum. Paul knows what he's saying. He's trying to give people a foundation. He's not trying. He does an amazing job of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, what it means to be called a follower of Jesus. And I call chapters 11, 12 onward 
the glory of Romans. Because as Paul finishes up the letter, Paul writes kind of like I do. If you read my writing, you know I get going and I have a hard time stopping because I get excited about what I'm writing about. And it comes fun for me at that point. And well, that's where Paul was because he gets going in chapter 11 talking about freedom that we have from division and, he, and using our gifts. And he gets to chapter 12 and he's just proclaimed, oh, the depth of the riches and the glory of God. Who can compare to you? That's the end of chapter 11, and chapter 12 starts. Take a deep breath. Therefore, in view of who God is, get this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Pause there for a second. When you think about God, take a look at his mercy on you. This is what Paul's saying. Look at him right now and say, his mercy is so great that I am called a son or a daughter of his. Not because I earned it, but because he freely gave it. In view of God's infinite mercy and grace, what should we do? How do we respond to that. Because really, as we'd sung about just a minute ago, it should drop us to our knees in a feeling of, I'm not worthy. So Paul wants to make sure we understand both theoretically and practically how do we respond. First, the theoretical. In view of God's mercy, I invite you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So first he reminds people of what they'd learned, what they'd grown up with, was this idea that following God is sacrificial. And that through Jesus Christ, what that sacrifice looks like now is completely different than what it was in the old covenant. And if you want to talk more about that, I would love to. But for the sake of time, understand this. Therefore, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ, and we who believe in the very name of Jesus have been set free. Our sins have been thrown in the ocean to be remembered no more, and we are invited to confess our sins, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, we carry his righteousness with us. We are bathed in his truth. There's a short summation of the gospel. You want to know more? Read Romans. Read John. Read the whole Bible. It's awesome. It really is, and I don't use that word lightly anymore. So, when we understand all this, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Then if we're not offering sacrifices on the altar anymore, we are tools of the Lord. So offer ourselves to him and say, here I am. Isaiah said, use me, send me. Isaiah the prophet. Holy and pleasing to God. So do it willingly. If you're a parent, you've lived through those times in your child's life where you have told them for the 800th time to do something. Clean your room. Take out the rubbish whatever it is, and you have told them over and over and over again, and just once 
You want them to do it willingly. And at the end of the day, that one day when they do it, you feel like a king because you have succeeded at life. Your child has done what they needed to do without you telling them. And that euphoria lasts for about 30 seconds. And then something else comes up. I believe that's how God sees us sometimes. He's invited us to willingly worship Him, knowing that it's so much greater than anything we put in our hearts ourselves. (laughs) And He watches us. He watches us fill our hearts with affections that are fine, but they're not His. They're not Him. And He just wants for once not to tell us to come back, that we would do it willingly that that sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, would be true and proper and out of love for him. And as we do that, the practical outpouring of that is in verse 2. How do we do that, Mike? I, I don't even understand. I know worship is about exalting God, but I know in theory how to be quiet. It means not talk. I know in theory what fasting means, to not eat or not do something so that I focus on God. I know what it means to spend time reading and studying the Word. That makes sense, but worship is ethereal. It, it's confusing. So Paul lovingly showed the church just what he was talking about. And I love how he did it. And we're going to focus on two points But here's the thing. Everything is spiritual. Everything in life is spiritual. So while I'm going to highlight a couple, don't think that there's areas of life this can't be worship. Everything done to please God is worshipful. Everything not, we've got to ask a hard question about whether our hearts are oriented and aimed in the right place. So, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Short and simple here first. Do not conform. We live in this world. You should be involved in this world. You should know what's going on. This week was a massive week in news, big and small. At the beginning of the week, we had the devastation uh, and prayer need of praying for the people of Haiti as they seek to rebuild. As the week moved on, LegCo swearing-ins were happening here in Hong Kong, and don't think for a moment that that went smoothly. If you want to know more, go read the papers. I'm not going to make editorial comments on it, but we're trusting our leaders to lead, and there's arguments already, and it was day one. So what does that mean for us as a people? What does that mean for our national brothers and sisters just north of the border and what might that mean for us in the future we don't know on thursday the king of thailand passed away all week there's news of what's going to be next with brexit what's going to be next with the refugees that desperately need a home and don't even get me started on the american elections It can feel overwhelming and it can feel like we need to get sucked in to all of that and let those things control our moods and our anxiety and our actions. And while it is important to know what's going on, while it is important to be an active member of society, do not let those things conform you and change you into their image. We are called to be light in a world that on its own will not seek the light, it will seek the darkness. And we have been invited into the light. We who 
are sons and daughters of the Most High God, adopted, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, know that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also says, I am the light of the world. So we point people to his light. And we say there's a better way. There's more. You want to live a life of worship? You understand that all of this going on pales in in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I faced a lot of discouragement this week as I walked with different people through different scenarios. Some of it broke my heart. Some of it made me want to just shake them and say, I wish you would just make the right decision. Uh, Others of it made me just stand back in helpless prayer of saying, God, I, I don't know how to help. And that's what the heart of worship is about, saying it's all the Lord's. Give it to him and let him open your eyes to the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. Jesus told us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things would be added to you. What he was meaning was that as you seek me first, not Mike, as you seek Jesus first, you will be bathed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. It will be given as your own that when God looks at you, he sees you as holy. But Mike, I'm no saint. You're right, but he is. And because we've been adopted as his sons and daughters, we have been made as a royal priesthood. We have been made as saints. And we're called to carry ourselves that way where we say, Lord, you've made me this way. You've created me for a purpose that's so much greater than a time card and making money and making sure that I'm successful in the eyes of the world. You've invited me to enjoy you forever and bring people with me as I learn what that looks like. As my mind is renewed, there's a physical response. Worship throughout the scriptures was both intellectual, renew your mind, know what God's word says. The people of Israel, they had many flaws, but you could never say the people of Israel did not know what God had said. Did they obey? Not so much. But you realize that most kids, by the time they were 12, had memorized the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible had been memorized. We get really excited when we memorize a verse. They'd memorize, just just think about this for a second, numbers. Anybody here memorize numbers? No. Okay, let's move on. How about Leviticus? You know, it's everybody's favorite book in the Bible. We spend a lot of time memorizing Leviticus. Not so much. But they saw the word of the Lord as living and active and true. Now, they got away from that and they faded and they made that a God in itself rather than trusting the relationship that God had created us for and seeing what God was pointing them to. And they missed out. But they knew the word. What we're called to is as we learn the word by renewing our mind, we're letting it refine and change our hearts and cause us to live lives of worship. Worship Throughout the scriptures meant all sorts of things. We're told to clap our hands. We tried a couple times this morning and then we gave up. Did you notice that? A couple times a couple people clapped and, and then it was like, ooh. You know, worship for even King David was dancing. You will not see me try that, 
But if, if the Lord gets a hold of your body, do a dance and bring glory to him because he gave you rhythm and me none. That was very much part of how people praised the Lord. They praised the Lord with harp and with lyre and in music and they sang songs that brought glory to him. Have you read the Psalms? They were meant to be sung. Even if you sing like me. Worship is physical. Worship meant that when Moses was before the burning bush and he looked, take off your sandals because where you are standing is holy ground and he fell prostrate. And he was like, whoa. Worship, when we come in contact with the magnificence of God, should draw us to our knees, but at the same time lift us up in exaltation to him. We're told time and again, lift up your hands, O oh, you sinners, because of who he is. All the different physical responses of the greatness and glory of God. Now, am I becoming Pentecostal? No, I just believe that what's here is true and is useful today, that we can glorify God through how he's made us. And that might cause us to get pretty excited about him. You sang wonderfully this morning. I, in purpose, didn't look behind me because I was so enjoying how well you were singing. And it was amazing because I know God was glorified in that. But worship is also intellectual, knowing, like I've said, knowing what the word of God says. And it's also the heart. It's also saying, God, it's all yours, Ben. I trust you with everything in my life. And I'm going to make space in my life to let you center me right where I need to be. Mike, how do I worship God? Well, you invite him to examine your priorities. You invite him to test and approve what we're doing and making sure that every decision we're making is to bring glory to him. That's where we start. It is an intensely personal thing, this idea of worship. But it doesn't just stop there because there are things that can kill worship and I want to touch on them briefly. But I've lost... Let's see if we can find it here. Matt Chandler talks about four things that are source idols. If, if, if that doesn't make sense to you, things that we can exalt over God things that we can put up here ahead of God. Now, there's all sorts of things. You could make long lists of everything from success to status to all, all sorts of different things, but, but they all have a source in really one of a number of things. And the first is that we seek out the ability to control our situation. Okay, that's the first one. I apologize. Uh, I can get it to you uh, this way. So if you'll give me just a second. Okay, there they are. Um, we can seek out, and I'm going to start with control here because it's, it's the one, uh, the guy that did the survey, he's a pastor of a church of about ten to 11,000 people. And when they surveyed what they struggled with most, what was their, their biggest source of insecurity in life, it was always the need for control first. We want to control our environments. We want to know right now how things are going to turn out. But here's the thing. This doesn't promise that. This promises that God is in control, 
This promise is that God is trustworthy and faithful and that he will never give more than we can handle, but that we are to trust in his mysterious ways in spite of what is going on around us. And there's oh so much of that. The next one, if, if you put them in order for, for the Village Church in Austin, Texas, the second was the quest for power, that we want to have power and authority over others, that we seek that out. That's a natural tendency, that first we want control, then we would want power, and the third would be we would want comfort. We want to know that everything's okay. And then finally, we want the, the approval of others. In all of these things, while power, God gives power. We talked about this last night in our community group. It is God who ordains some to be leaders. But how they exercise it can take their eyes off of God and they can begin to use that power to exalt themselves rather than God. Control. We need good people that keep control of situations and that help us see where we're going and how we're getting there. But they do it for the glory of God. The minute they do it for themselves... The peace of God that transcends all understanding is replaced with anger and anxiety because we're afraid we can't control what's going to happen next. I struggle with a need for control, and I wrestled with that last night. You want to know why? I couldn't remember if we had bought the barbecue sticks that we need for today. And I am dead serious. I was up half the night worried about where would I find them if we hadn't gotten them already. Because I needed to control that scenario, even though I've got an amazing staff that covers up all the things I miss. I needed to control barbecue forks. How stupid is that? But how true is it? The minute I let that become the affection of my heart, the attention of my heart, my heart wasn't on the rest that I needed. And it wasn't on the Lord. It was on, I got to make sure this gets done because what if nobody else does it? And that goes to power. Well, I shouldn't tell them to do that. You know, it just goes and it goes and it goes. And then what? I get angry or I get stressed. We want these things and we need these things in our lives, but they pull us away from giving everything we have to the Lord. And that's a danger. And we want to be careful of that. And so as we, live to li- as we seek to live lives of worship, we want to be oh so careful of those what I call worship killers, the source idols, the seeking of approval, the seeking of comfort, the seeking of power, the seeking of our need for control. And we want to say, Lord, I give it all to you. My spiritual act of worship is saying, I'm giving you my need for approval because you've already approved me through Jesus Christ. You've already adopted me into the family. I'm giving you my need for comfort because you promised me that your son went back to prepare a place for me for all eternity and it's going to be better than anything I could ever imagine and you will never leave me nor forsake me. Lord, I'm going to trust you with my need to have power and be the boss and be at the top of the food chain because you are sovereign and you are worthy to be praised and you are in control and I trust you. You are my authority, not the leaders of this land. And Lord, I want to control everything and I want to have it just my way, but it's not working. And so I give you control of my life. Like the country song that Pastor Mike can't stand, Lord Jesus, take the wheel. And as we do those things, our lives are pivoted toward a place of worship. 
The worship killers are put off to the side because we see the magnificence of God. And we say, Lord, it's all yours. And then as we get that picture, we get to see what Paul was talking about later on as he's inviting people to live in the glory of God and live in the ravishing beauty of a vibrant relationship with the Most High God. And in chapter 15, as he's saying, don't let these little things divide you. Don't let these little things get in the way of what God has for you, a people, together. And throughout Romans, he's, he's towed the line of both individual salvation and corporate worship and all of these things. And here he moves into corporate. And in verse 5 of Romans chapter 15, if I can get there, maybe it says this. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, he's just warned, don't let this divide you. Don't let this get in the way. Give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. You want to worship Get together with your brothers and sisters in Christ and value them as Christ has valued us. So much so that he would give himself up for us. You want to worship the Lord? You show people that God loves them immensely and that so do we. And we love being together in holy expectation of what God is going to do in and through his people. So how do we finish up? Well, we finish up by practicing a few things if we understand that God has created us to worship him both personally and corporately, there's some ways we can do it. First, practice adoration. Learn what the scriptures say about God and tell him back to him. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. Uh, the Lord is my rock and my salvation, and whom shall I fear? The list goes on and on about the attributes of God. Tell him. Get in the habit of knowing who God is and what he's doing. Psalm 24 is a great one. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. God, it's all yours. Isaiah 6. Isaiah comes into the presence of God and says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And God says, no, I got you. Read it. Quote it back. Practice adoration. Sing out these songs that were all based on scripture and praise the Lord as we do it. Then, enjoy all of his creation, mind, body, and soul the renewing of your mind, the affections of your heart, the orientation of your hearts, the care of your physical state, because our bodies are the temple of the Most High God. And so how do we take care of ourselves? Enjoy Him and enjoy His creation. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Romans 12 says we offer ourselves to him and he's made it all. And then we live expectantly. When you come in here, do you come in at the last minute and hope to get something out of it and, and then leave, rush in a hurry? Or do you come in excited to be with the Lord together with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Asking God to open your eyes to his working. And then we do it together. We get together and we enjoy God. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 talk about using our gifts, being unified as one, loving each other with patience. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. You get the idea. All of this is done in community. 
And all of this is a part of what worship means. And as we finish today, I want to give the best picture I can come up with for a life that's a worshipful life of God. Uh, Next Sunday, I will not be at church. I will be trying something I've never done before. I'm running a 25K mountain race. Stupid. It's a dumb idea. Why did I sign up for it? It starts at Hoi Ha in Saikung, and it goes up and down the mountains at least four times that I can count on the map, starting at sea level and going up over 400 meters. Genius. I'm so excited. But I've been training for that for a few weeks. Not enough, or else this would be gone. And about three weeks ago, I had asked our helper, would you hang out with the kids? I need to go for a run. And I go out for a run, and as I'm running on the road that separates Ma'anshan from Saikung, uh, I'm on the sidewalk, and I hear a rustling in the bushes. And I hear, (coughs) and I know what that is, and that is not a happy pig. That is a wild boar. And boars scare me because I've seen one in the woods at night before, and it wasn't a friendly encounter. And so I ran away, and I was very scared, and, and I waved off all the other dogs and said, run away, go! And I moved on with my day. All was fine. That was fine. And so my focus then, the rest of the run, was on, am I going to see that boar? Is it going to you know, eat me? About three days later, I needed to go for another run. Nobody home. Well, the kids are home. Uh, everybody's home. Or Izzy was home. Melissa and the younger two were in the States. I go out. I tell everybody, hey, I'm on another run. I get to the place where I'd seen the boar a couple nights before. And I began, I was coming downhill, and so I was moving at a good pace, trying to get my cardio up to where it needs to be. And I began to shift my focus from the run to the boar. And it only took one half of a step to step off the sidewalk just two inches. And the minute I hit the side of the sidewalk, there was no guardrail there. There was a drainage culvert. And if you've seen drain culverts in Hong Kong, they're cement with a big trench in the middle. And I flipped my way down that twice into the bottom of the nastiest pool of water you could possibly find. And there I am laying in the bottom, only 10 feet, don't over, I mean, it looked awesome, I think. But don't think for a minute that I was falling down the side of a mountain. No, I fell maybe 10 feet. It hurt. But I was all cut up, arm, leg, back, everywhere. And when I went to see my doctor, she said, how did you fall? And I looked at her and I said, it only took a second for me to take my focus off the road. And the minute I did, I fell. And the minute I fell, I hurt. I just now got, well, you can still see, there's one there, most of my arm. And the worst part was, see, when we fall, I had to still go two and a half miles because I needed to get home and I'm way too stubborn to ask for help. Isn't that a picture of what our lives are like? The Lord has laid the path right in front of us. And if he said, if you would but follow me, I will protect you, I will watch over you, and I will give you all you need for the journey. But all it takes is a step where just your foot gets just that much off. And we take a tumble, and oh, does it make us humble. I looked so stupid. The first three things I thought in this order, where's my phone? Because I dropped it. Second, did anyone see me? (laughs) And third, and, and really, this was the order. And third was, am I all right? Shouldn't that have been the first 
Because when I saw myself in the mirror, I was covered in blood. Everybody that drove by me that didn't look must have thought I was a a zombie. (laughs) But how true is that in our spiritual lives? We walk through seeking to fix ourselves in every other way. When God's saying right here, come on back. The center of the road is safe and secure. There's risk on every side. You will face all sorts of trials and temptations, but I will carry you through. I am enough. If he's enough, do we give him all our glory? Do we say we're satisfied with the life he's called us to? And do we say, here, Lord, it's all yours. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth of embarrassing lessons that show us that you are all we need. Please don't let us take our eyes off of you even for a moment. May our steps be straight along the narrow path that you have set before us. And in all these things, may we take pleasure in bringing glory to your great and holy and mighty name.